Hi everybody, thanks for tuning in. This is the first episode of Activist Lawyer for 2021. It's going to be quite brief. Um, I'm joined here by Jack McClelland, who you will know from previous episodes, is our uh, legal assistant and also a student studying a master's in law at Queen's University Belfast. So thanks, Jack. No problem, good to be here. First session. So we're very excited to kick off the new year, although we're starting with some, I suppose, grim reports. Topics, yeah. <laughs> we can't really avoid it, but we'll try to avoid some aspects of it. It's really just to say hello to our listeners and to thank you for listening. I, we've been going since October last year, so not very long indeed. We've had five guests on, five episodes, and uh, we're really impressed with the feedback that we've received and really looking forward to some of the guests that we've lined up for 2021. Unfortunately, we're smack bang in the middle of another lockdown. So we've had to make some changes there with people being able to uh, free themselves up to come into the studio to record. But we will host some recordings via phone in and we will have guests lined up for you covering very important and specific topics. Again, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us online at www.activistlawyer.com and make sure to have a look at our blog section. And if you feel like you're somebody who would want to contribute, again, feel free to do so and contact us there. So, Jack, we just mentioned there, smack bang in the middle of another lockdown. Uh, So, I mean, you, student, I know you're working as well, but how's it going? Uh, Yeah, well, New Year, same covid um, nothing's really changed from March time. Um, we're going back to class now at the start of February. We were told about a month ago when we thought COVID was going to fizzle out that we'd be getting face-to-face classes, but we've been told again now back into lockdown for the foreseeable. Mm-hmm. We don't know when we're going to come out of this ne- next lockdown, but it's going to be all online. So I think that's me finished my uni mm. experience oh. actually being in class, but... We'll get through it, I think, a couple of more months and definitely can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's hard for students and young people, especially those who maybe started off in first year, you know, in their undergrad. They really didn't get that experience at all. And I know there's issues now around fees and the refund of fees paid for courses that didn't actually take place or weren't really provided for at the level expected. And also around, obviously, the expensive payment um, for living expenses and, yeah. and rentals. So I know that's an argument that's going on at the minute. And you didn't really hear much focus on students the last time or during the other lockdowns but now it seems to be coming to the fore which is good to have that exposure I guess but I suppose the main thing is young people and and mental health and I'm sure you know you're in touch with your your colleagues and your fellow students but hopefully you know everybody's feeling safe and and well. I think uh, I think it's it's being talked about a lot more now because I've, I've seen even English students, Welsh students, Scottish students and Irish students have been posting on Facebook now those who have come to like the end of their tether and they are breaking down mentally mm-hmm. and they've been posting on social media about how this whole lockdown and how the lack of support has impacted them and they're really at breaking point and I think people have caught mm-hmm. on to that now how important it is that students need to be um, supported and especially with that the rent yeah. um, thing <coughs> I've seen now a couple of local MPs have shared Student Roost, I think, is going yes. to give some sort of uh, refund, but that only includes a small amount of people uh-huh. who have 
got student accommodation from that company. So it's still there's a lot of students left oh, out. Yeah. So it's gonna it's gonna be going on for a long, long time. But hopefully this is the start. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't take some event or something to happen to a student to really push this on because it needs to be handled now so so nothing like that happens in the future. You're right and I think we were lucky to have Darren Mackin from Phoenix Law join us a couple of weeks ago just before Christmas. He touched on some of the areas um, and uh, industries I suppose affected by COVID and also looked at the possible, you know, the possibility of fundamental rights as well um, in the current climate that we're living in, in particular in relation to Northern Ireland here with Brexit and different things happening at the same time. So we're living through very, very challenging times and I'm pleased that we're going to be joined by guests uh, from next week onwards who are going to be talking about very serious issues such as the ongoing crisis um, regarding the pressure on our medical uh, services, our hospitals, our carers and the awful issue around waiting lists for people who have cancer and very serious illnesses. So we're going to have a look at that too. We know that there are a number of judicial reviews in Northern Ireland underway covering uh, matters affected by COVID. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And again, we look forward to talking about that. Uh, I guess we're, we're, we're still not uh, free from the clutches of what's going on in America. And also we're going to have a quick look at what's been happening closer to home here in Ireland. Not in very great detail because again we will be joined by specific, by experts and lawyers who have a particular role in terms of their activism and support for issues that have arisen recently. But I guess we'll not go any further, Jack, without touching on one issue that I've been glued to, I have to say. CNN is my new new channel and I've been particularly interested in the commentary by Donny O'Sullivan, who's the, the Irish commentator there, yeah. and his reporting on horrific events that we just... I, I remember I was on the phone speaking to somebody and I could see this sudden surge towards Capitol Hill and uh, you could see that these rioters were clearly breaking in and I just had to look in complete awe, although part of me kind of expected yeah. that to happen given the, the climate and what had gone on earlier. So you've really been following it closely. Yeah, it's def- Netflix have definitely got um, some sort of material for a few documentaries coming up in the next couple of years with the yeah. last couple of weeks. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so as we all know that there was a march and break-in in the capital uh, a couple of well, a couple of days now mm-hmm. is it a couple of days ago, um, but I think it was the sixth. Wasn't sixth was it January? Yeah. So there's been a lot of talk about it, and obviously a lot of information now has been released because when you're watching it at the time, it was just live footage. You didn't know what really was happening. It seemed just like a lot of crazy individuals just breaking in. But the information released now really shows that it was a planned planned event. So I was looking online, and we found that. Um, it, the attacker, the attackers planned it online to attack the capital, um, and the officers within the capital knew that this was going to happen, and they assured the representatives within the capital that mm-hmm. they would be protected, which they clearly weren't. No. So they were overrun. There was eight thousand protesters and only fourteen hundred officers within the capital. Which so is very visible from very the visible. Yeah. Fifteen minutes it took for them to be overrun. Right. Just fifteen. So minutes. Jack, that's in um, stark contrast to what we'd seen in the summertime in America 
when we witnessed the Black Lives Matter protests mm -hmm. yep. and this serious security Kept that was in place army gear. around that. Yep. And you could see very clearly on social media people immediately sharing the contrast yep. in, in those two events. So it leaves a lot to to talk about about the, the state of America. And I think these incidents aren't just isolated incidents that spring from nowhere, whether it's the Black Lives Matter protests or uh, this latest insurrection mm -hmm. is what people are describing it as on uh, democracy and on Capitol Hill there. It's been building up. Oh, it's been building up, you know. yeah. Um, and it, it does show that people's language especially those who have a high uh, like a lot of influence such as trump and giuliani is mm. disgraced lawyer now who mm. trump has actually come out and said that he's not going to pay his fees oh so they've, they've split from each other really okay. so trump has said that he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore uh -oh. um but trump and giuliani said that those supporters should march to capitol hill mm -hmm. show strength and engage in trial by combat giuliani said right so and attendees at those who broke into the Capitol actually can be heard saying, our president wants us here. So it, it, it was a result of Trump yeah. and Giuliani's yeah. and other right-wing groups. It's not like just, yeah, and I, I think other Republicans as well. I mean, there is a very clear footage uh, of Republican senators who had previously, just days before, held rallies and their language, as you mentioned, it's highly influential, was just as toxic. Mm -hmm. And when we hark back to our very first episode of Activist Lawyer, and I suppose the whole title of this this podcast show, it's about that language and how language can really influence the public, especially where it's, um, you know, placed with leaders of a country like Trump and like we've, we've spoken already about pretty Patel and Boris Johnson. But this is just one example of this highly influential uh, use of language and then kind of backing off from it. And even yeah. some of the, the perpetrators, not perpetrators, but the people who'd influenced people, whether it be online or at these rallies, are now backing off. And you can really clearly see that. But there's still some division there. And he's Trump still has a lot of support. And I, I was looking, even though he's been impeached, I listened to the one to two minute slots of uh, senators speaking yesterday just before the vote and some of them one of them in particular and I, I can't remember the gentleman's name but he really could not see where the problem was yeah. he thought this was a waste of resources a waste of time when the country had bigger fish to fry and bigger things to deal with and he did not or could not lay the blame at the president and felt that the president did all he could to stop the riot um, or whatever we want to call it so there still is a division we must remember the president or the outgoing president still has a huge level of support. Yeah. And I guess people are worried now in the lead up to the inauguration of Joe Biden, the new president, and what's going to happen because there's been lots of chatter on social media networks about this. So huge matters to talk about, particularly around free speech and maybe the silencing of the president by global... Yeah, so... Capitalism. Actually, the 30 days leading up to that incident, um, Storm the Capitol was tweeted over 100,000 times. Right. So it's not like this random thing happened. No. It was planned and mm -hmm. it was talked about for just over a month before it happened. But as we've seen, Donald Trump has been now banned from Twitter, Facebook yeah. and Instagram. I think Is so. Those three, definitely Twitter, which is his main platform. Mm -hmm. But 
And now there's the whole talk about restriction of freedoms. Freedom of speech. And even some leaders have completely, although they are not Trump's supporters or fans in any sense, they do not agree with the fact that he was banned. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it begs the question, as one single person banning him, how much, you know, how influential is that I mean he's not the only one let's say but maybe it's because he has a huge following and I mean his office is you know the highest in the world supposedly and um, the danger that that presented but I guess I haven't really looked into it but that whole question about whether it was right to do that and who in fact has control do these companies ultimately call the shots yeah but you have to realise and I think people are I think people forget and people think that on Twitter, on Facebook, and so on social media, that they can say what they want, when they want. But these social media com- companies are businesses, and they have some sort of responsibility to prevent the spread of hate, uh, the cause of violence, which some of his mm-hmm. tweets were. They have a responsibility as a business to stop that. Yeah. So I think taking him off Twitter isn't really a restriction of freedom of speech, because it's kind of outweighed by preventing hate, yes. preventing violence. I think that outweighs his freedom to tweet some ridiculous tweets. Mm-hmm. And I think between the two, Donald Trump as the president has responsibility. Yeah. And the company such as Twitter has responsibility. And one of those took action to take mm-hmm. responsibility and it wasn't Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, I think everybody will have their own opinion. And I guess some lawyers who are completely impartial and would really step back from any way supporting Trump they're looking at it in a pragmatic way just to say, does this set a, a dangerous precedent mm-hmm. though? And in fact, in terms of privacy and the protection of freedom of speech, where do we stand now? Yeah. Um, globally, I mean, this just doesn't affect single people in a, in a particular country. This is a question that will be discussed and will be played out and will be teased out. And there, no matter what sti- side you're on or what stance you take, there will be serious ramifications going forward. But it's just interesting to see all of this play out before our very eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So moving on to something completely different, and we're just going to touch on this because, again, we are very pleased that we will be joined by lawyers who will be able to speak to this issue a lot better than I can. And I guess we're just going to touch on it because it's been so uh, dominant in local media and, and national, actually, yeah. this week. And... I'm talking about the Irish state and uh, the apology, in particular, that Taoiseach Michal Martin made yesterday in response to a report that was issued by a commission, a long-awaited report by a judicial commission of investigation into the so-called mother and baby homes or institutes that really mark a massive stain on Irish history and society. For many years, yep. uh, some of the report goes back to the 20s right through to the 90s, which, you know, was when I was young. Yeah, it's not that far away. organizations were still operative. Although I guess the experience of women then may be very different from those who attended in the 40s, 50s, 60s and even 70s. So I've been reading a lot about it. I got up early to have a look at the uh, synopsis and the executive summary of the report. And it's hard not to kind of fall apart a little bit. Um, And I think Micheál Martin will just touch on his apology, but... No matter who you are, I mean, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to really be sincere in your apology. Whether it's enough for the victims or the survivors who are still alive and their children, 
because as we know, families were impacted by this, not just the mothers themselves. It had huge ramifications on on entire families in, in many, many ways. And there are many, many stories. And I guess it's not up to us to say whether his apology was enough or not. It's up to them. And really, actions speak louder than words. And I don't think personally it's enough to simply apologise. Having said that, it's good to hear. And it's good to hear an acknowledgement. And I think from that acknowledgement will come action. I hope. Hope, I'm hopeful that that will happen. I listened to his speech just as it was reported on the news and his apology. The one thing he kept saying was, we, we, we apologise and we are sorry. I just wonder who, who... who is we you know is it the state is it the church is it society and this is the debate at the moment so just to give people a little bit of background I guess into this appalling incident that happened and actually the biggest thing that people were talking about is the the rates of infant mortality is just overwhelming and shocking and really hard to take in but it's referring to this grim history um, of institutions in Ireland that really abused and shamed unmarried mothers, as they were termed, and their children, of course, for pretty much much of the 20th century, as we just said. So the investigation has been called on for years and years and years. It's finally come together and it documents the shocking death rates and the absolute cruelty that these institutions that kind of, I suppose, many of them doubled as orphanages and adoption agencies um, carried out against young mothers, well, mothers who raged from anywhere, age 12, right through to women in their 40s, were placed mm-hmm. into these homes. So the report itself, I read it, and it's it's fine. It's quite, I would say, I got the sense that it's, even though you're shocked by its content, it's quite sanitised in a way. You know, it it doesn't really comment a lot on the nature of the, the abuse. It does um, highlight some positive aspects. It does tend to focus on the fact that um, you know families had a choice and placed women into the homes. And you read that in contrast with listening to on various stations and various outlets, yet outlets yesterday the actual stories from survivors, and you think, gosh, they haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, it doesn't no. reflect on personal experiences it really doesn't and i mean i'm really interested to see how this report um will be carried forward and what impact it will have will there be redress there financial compensation that's being called for the for the survivors uh which you know there should be fully entitled to will there be criminal proceedings taken some people are calling for international criminal court action i don't know how far that will go uh-huh. but people are outraged and they're furious yeah. and for many people they accept the acknowledgement many people have since died and their children are now listening to this and wishing that their parent had still been alive to hear this so it's too little too late for many many people But I guess, as I said, actions speak louder than words and we'll see what comes of it. And here in Northern Ireland as well, this wasn't just, you know, something that was particular to the Republic of Ireland. In fact, it's something that happens all over the world. But really, it's an Irish issue because at the time, more women, more unmarried women were placed into these institutions than anywhere else in the whole world. So it is very much an Irish issue in that respect. And the report estimates that 9,000 children died in 18 institutions between 1922 and 1998 when the last home was closed 
So, I mean, just think about that. And yes, part of those, in some of those decades, infant, mort- infant mortality was high in parts of Ireland for various reasons and various diseases, but nothing compared to children who'd been placed in those homes. So it's very, very sad, very depressing and very grim. And we hope that um, the same will come for survivors in Northern Ireland when they look into both organisations run by Catholic institutions, but also Protestant homes yeah. as well, that really perpetrated such um, <coughs> abuse uh, on and neglect towards children. So I'm glad that the work of Catherine Corliss, who is from Toome and really started, I mean, very bravely <laughs> stood up to huge adversity and was able to find uh, the death certificates and uncover the bodies of children buried in Toome. I think it was the Bon Secours uh, organisation there. So very, very sad. And I don't think the report, well, it is a report and I mean, it's done by a commission. I think it's welcome and it covers, I mean, the statistics are very startling and what went on, but really it's the victim stories that are now coming to light. And we all knew a little bit. I I worked previously on a redress board for boys, boys homes, and the gentlemen were all in their 60s, 70s. And they attended places like Letter Frack in Galway and we um, worked on getting them compensation, but they just, it didn't really matter that much. No. Their lives had been so drastically uh, ruined and dictated by their childhood experience to such an extent that they almost felt hopeless, you know, many of them. So I get a sense of what some survivors feel, and I know some of the stories, but yesterday I read through some of them, and really I think people are feeling empowered now and feeling a sense of support for the first time to be able to come out and tell their stories. You know, and everybody has different experience. So the common notion, I think, is that people... felt that their families had placed them into these homes. So it was your family to blame. So your mother and father, if you come home pregnant and you're unwed, the shame and disgrace that that would bring in your family, the family placed you there. And I just think that is just such a, just a scapegoat society as a whole. I don't think that's acceptable. I think society was moulded by the sheer power that was still in place by the church at the time. So there's no getting away from that at all. And it reminded me of a book that I read for A-level English literature called The Scarlet Letter. And it's set in, you know, a colony in Puritan New England at the time. And very, very severe society where a woman has a baby outside of wedlock. And, you know, her plague, her, her trauma, what she went through really affected me when I read the book. And every couple of years I bring it out and read it again. I brought it out yesterday just to have a look at it. And I just thought... What happened to Hester Prynne, who's the antagonist um, in Puritan England, you know, four or five hundred years ago, is nothing compared to what these women went through in Ireland in our lifetime. Well, just before you were born, Jack, but in modern history and modern times, it's really startling, you know. So hopefully we will have uh, some more discussion around this and we'll be following it very, very closely. But... The stories are really quite startling and, I mean, people are going to argue about who's to blame. Was it just the church? Was it the state? Was it society complicit? And I think there's going to be many factors contributing to it. But ultimately, it is about the power and the control that the church had over people and the fear that even mothers and fathers who did place their children into homes, the fear that was really installed in them to do that is shocking. One story I read really struck me where a 13-year-old girl was raped and her father and mother thoroughly supported her and she was placed, she said, 
into Bessborough are placed or forcibly removed is probably closer to reality by what she calls a mix of different people involved, doctors, the state authorities and the church as well. She had her baby, no pain relief given. Baby was taken off and she she later reconnected with the baby, but that was it. So some people would have stayed in the home just for the pregnancy and maybe for a few days afterwards, but many of them actually stayed there for a very long time. Um, Many of our listeners will be familiar with the story of Philomena Lee who was able to have her baby, I think she was in Sean Ross Abbey, she was able to have her baby um, after being incarcerated there for being pregnant with um, a gentleman, I think he worked in the post office. But she went in and she cared for her baby for three and a half years. So she was able to play with her baby for a couple of hours a day, um, obviously bonded with her own child, and suddenly the child snatched off her and adopted out. And the facts around that case were that the the nuns in that case did, in fact, receive money. Um, So there's more controversy around this whole issue about donations. Where were these donations recorded? What money was exchanged? Was there money exchanged? So the report doesn't really go into that. Mm -hmm. But women who later discovered their own stories realised that they, they had been paid adoptions and illegal and forced adoptions as well, where they would be forced to sign their baby away. So this happened to Philomena Lee, where her son was taken then off. He lived with an American family and unfortunately in the 90s he died of AIDS. And Philomena later discovered this after having moved to England and disclosing her past, her sad uh, history with her own family. Went on a mission to try and find her son. Discovered he was dead, but the son actually requested that he be buried at Sean Ross Abbey on the grounds in case his mother went looking for him and could find him. And she did. She found him buried there where she had given birth to him. And I just find that just so startling and so sad. But again, uh, Philomena has gone on to be an absolute advocate for adoptions and adoption reform. And is just just an activist, just somebody who you just admire for their strength. So it just strikes me as this is a massive change in Ireland. It's welcome, the acknowledgement of it is welcome because for years it's been ignored. The records are still sealed. People can't even access their own personal data. People for years continued to live without birth certificates, without knowing who in fact they were or who belonged to them. And one woman spoke yesterday that she used to be paranoid that she was in a relationship with a cousin or a brother because she didn't know who she was related to. I mean, that just shocked me when I heard that as well. So there is still a sense that a lot of this is whitewashed, that maybe some of the survivor stories haven't really been included. Many, many contributed to the report, and that's fantastic. But really, we need to just, it, it needs to be exposed fully, the grim reality of it. And people need to accept that this did happen in the north of Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. And it's not enough to just simply apologise. So, yep. sorry, that's a bit of a rant, but it's something that I'm just so, I've been following it for a long time. Worked, you know, with a couple of the, the Magdalens as well when I worked in Dublin. And it just strikes me as incredible. Yeah, and the UN, I was reading there a bit about it, and the UN Committee on Torture has come out and criticised the Irish government for not following criminal proceedings against those involved. Right. And again, you're talking about, this is most, you're mostly talking about the South, but obviously it happened significantly in the North as well. And an academic research um, report is being produced and going to be given to Stormont with recommendations by the end of this month. 
um, and their suggestion that the current numbers that they think of people who went through the mother and baby homes, which is currently sitting, they think seven and a half thousand, mm-hmm. but they're saying following this Probably research more. that it's significantly yeah, it more is. than well, that. They're looking at maybe nine thousand went in, um, or sorry, scrap that. Significantly more significantly than that. Significantly more. And I mean, the infant mortality rate is just shocking. It really is. And I mean, anyone with with children and not even, but just anybody with a heart has to really read these reports and read the accounts of the survivors and just shudder at the reality. So there'd be lots of discussion. There'd be discussion about various things like statues that still remain. Um, There's one in Dublin. I can't remember. I think it's in Bagot Street where there is one of the Sisters of Mercy and she's showing an unmarried mother, supposedly, into the convent. And that's still there. We know that Bespur is still there, one of the homes, and it's being used. And we know that there are a number of institutes and buildings in Dublin that people are arguing over as to what their use should be. Should it be a museum? You know, what should we use these buildings for? Because they really do mark part of history, a very sad part of history. And this, you know, it will continue um, to be discussed. So it's definitely a matter that we will be looking into. I think it's always interesting to find out more about what's going on in, in America and um, it would be great if we were joined by some experts as well to comment on that in terms of maybe uh, the evolution of, of democracy going forward and what the new America is going to look like in light of all that's happened and, you know, positively under the new president-elect Joe Biden. So exciting but scary times ahead. And I think 2021 is going to be a little bit like 2020 in that we just do not know what's going to be around yeah. the corner. Although one thing is for certain, and we're going to avoid it a little bit here, you know, Brexit. It's something that I just feel <laughs> too, I don't know, bogged down. It's born in, now, I think, compared <laughs> to well, COVID and all's made it slightly born. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's kind of been, and I don't like that it's been pushed to the back and I don't like that some underhandedness is going on in the background and that things are maybe slipping through the net that we're not um, maybe noticing because of what's going on. So I just don't trust anything that's happening in respect of Brexit. And I think we are again just seeing, you know, um, things that are just symptomatic of what's to come. Personally, I think my views are very clear. I don't see any benefit (laughs) whatsoever. I don't. I honestly don't. And I think the business community have so much to deal with and how to grapple with this. With Dara mentioning um, the importance of still campaigning and focusing on fundamental rights, we as activist lawyers and everybody who listens to this and everybody involved, you know, it's, I suppose, our job to try and make sure that our rights are in place. So we look forward to... 2021 on Activist Lawyer. Again, we have some very exciting guests coming through. Um, We hope that everybody is keeping safe and looking after your well-being and your mental health in these challenging, challenging times. People are still working through them and still representing uh, vulnerable and people who need support. And we are so keen to hear from you. Please get involved and check us out on www.activistlawyer.com. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. 
Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.